The Holy Gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. And do not bring us to the time of trial. And he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, for a friend of mine has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, Do not bother me. The door has already been locked, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot give up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not give up, get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and will give him whatever he needs. So I ask to you, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for a fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if the child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. Grace and peace to you from our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we begin in the book of Genesis with a pretty funny exchange between Abraham and God. God is heading off to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin, which the scripture says is their great inhospitality, greed, and failure to care for the poor. But Abraham's nephew's Abraham's nephew, Lot, lives in Sodom, and so he must intercede. And he says, but Lord, what if there are 50 righteous people in that place? Would you destroy them along with everyone else? Such a thing is beneath someone as great and just as you. And God reconsiders and says, if there are 50 righteous, I won't destroy it. And in my imagination, I think of God saying under God's breath, yeah, right, there are not 50 righteous people in that place. But it's a deal. But Abraham isn't done. What about 45 or 40 or 30? Do I hear 20? And God agrees, but is still thinking, no way, there are even 20 righteous people in that town. But Abraham finally says, what if there are 10 righteous people? Surely there are 10. And God relents. For 10, I will not destroy it. Essentially, God says, I will not destroy the city. And thus, the clever Abraham saves his nephew and his family and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He saves the day because of his persistence in prayer and his appeal to God's mercy and justice. This exchange between Abraham and God from Genesis today reminds me of when my son Finn was little. Because if Finn wanted something, he would go about it in exactly the same way as Abraham. Say, when Finn was around four or five years old, and he really wanted a TV show before his quiet afternoon time. Sometime late in the morning, he'd come to me and say, Daddy, can I have a show? 
And I'd say, no, no show today. And then 10 minutes later, he'd come back and say, Daddy, what about a short show? No, Finn, no show today. 10 minutes later, okay, Daddy, here's the deal. We have a show, and then I spend quiet time in my room today. No, Finn, no show. 10 minutes later, Daddy, can I help you with something? And can I have a show? And after about six rounds of this, I just started laughing. Finn was so determined, working every angle, using the full extent of his creativity, appealing to all my better angels. I might break down and give him a show, and I might not, but that was really beside the point, because in that moment, what I felt most of all was delight. Delight in Finn. His humor, his personality, his persistence, his personhood, and that continues to this very day. Now it's about going to concerts, wanting to drive the car, and adventures with friends. I wonder if God didn't feel the same kind of delight for Abraham. You have to figure that God knew what Abraham was up to. It's God, after all. Maybe God just plays along. I imagine that throughout this encounter, the 50, 40, 30, 20, and 10, God is delighting in Abraham, in his faith, in his appeal to mercy and justice, for his love of his nephew and nephew's family, and compassion for the people in those cities. So God lets it all play out and finally says, Okay, Abraham, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. This morning, the story of God and Abraham is coupled with Jesus talking about prayer in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is praying and his disciples ask, Teach us to pray as we should. And Jesus gives them the Lord's Prayer. He tells them about the importance of persistence in prayer, like knocking on your neighbor's door at midnight to borrow some bread and knocking as long as necessary until they get up and give it to you. He tells them to ask, to search, and to knock. He assures them that God, like a parent with a child, will give them every good thing. In fact, this was Jesus' own experience and practice of prayer, that of a child talking to a parent. It is the way of prayer that he passes down to his disciples and to us. And it comes right at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven. This first petition, as it's sometimes referred to, sets the terms of the prayer. We don't say, our King, our Lord, our Judge, our Creator, or any of the other multitude of names for God in Scripture. We say, our Father our parent. We take this for granted, but it's important, for it not only sets the terms of our prayer, but it sets the tone for our faith. In a small catechism, Martin Luther writes about the Lord's Prayer in this first line, and he says, with these words, God wants to entice us so that we come to believe he is truly our Father and we are truly his children, in order that we may ask him boldly and with complete confidence just as loving children ask their loving Father. Now, some of us, because of our life experiences, might not associate that godly ideal with a father. For some, it is mother or aunt or uncle or grandfather or sister or friend. But whatever that relationship of love, intimacy, acceptance, and delight is in your life, that is what Jesus is talking about. And that's what Jesus says that our relationship with God 
is like. The point, as one commentator observes, is that when we pray, the request we make is not nearly as important as the interaction between us and God. They say the how, the why, and when of prayer, the technique, is not nearly as important as the who, God, our loving parent. This makes sense to me when I think of Finn asking for those things over and over again, for ultimately it's not so much about what he is asking for or what I may or may not give or have the ability to give even if I wanted to. It's about the relationship within which that takes place. It's about Finn knowing that he can ask me. And just so, prayer is so much more about our relationship than our technique or the outcome. This is what Jesus wants his disciples and us to know. We are to pray in the knowledge that we are in a relationship with God and that God already loves us like a beloved child. Prayer doesn't create that relationship. Prayer happens within it. Prayer becomes the way we communicate our deepest needs, desires, and joys. Sometimes we pray like little kids, asking God for the same thing every 10 minutes, and that's fine. Sometimes we pray to God like teenagers, testing the limits, and that's fine. Sometimes we pray like college kids that only pick up the phone when they need money, and that's fine. But at a certain time in life, as we get older, we reach a point with our parents where it's not about the transaction, not about the asking or the giving. It's just about being together, like sitting on the porch with your mom or just having a drink with your dad or sitting on the couch with the kids watching a show, being in the presence of someone you don't have to impress or explain anything to, where nothing needs to be said, where just to be in their presence is enough. And more than enough. That is the best. This is the kind of feeling that I get when I take time for silent prayer. When I slow down long enough to remember that God is present and that I am in God's presence, I experience a love and intimacy that doesn't need words. It is my heart with all its longings and hopes and fears next to God's heart with all its grace, peace, and love. And a beautiful silent exchange happens where God takes what is mine and gives me God's own. When I think of prayer, I think about talking to my mom on the phone. My mom has known me longer than anyone, obviously. She knows me almost as well as anyone. And so when I pick up the phone, we are already up to speed. And I don't need to explain anything, even why I haven't called recently. Our relationship is assumed, and we have a shorthand for our shared story. My mom always tells me how happy she is to hear my voice, so happy that I called, and she lets me go on and on and on about myself. Afterwards, Jenny will ask me what we talked about, and I'll say, I don't remember. And she'll say, but you talked for like an hour. And I just shrug, because the details aren't as important as the delight in being together. This, I think, is the beginning and the heart of prayer. And this is why Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, our Father in heaven. For before a word is spoken, God delights in us. And then and only then we ask, your kingdom come. And then and only then we say, give us our daily bread. 
And then and only then, forgive us our sins and help us to forgive others. And then save us from the time of trial. For whatever it is that we seek, whatever we ask, our prayer like our faith always begins with our loving God in heaven. So when you go to pray, you don't need to apologize for not having prayed in a while. You don't need to scrunch up your face and feel like you're trying to restore communications to a distant satellite. You don't have to worry about doing it a certain way. There is no one way. There is no one right way. There are so many ways to pray, so many that you are probably praying without realizing that you are doing it. Whenever you hold someone in your thoughts, you're praying. Whenever you feel heartsick with the state of the world, you're praying. Whenever you let out a long sigh, you are praying. When you are still for a moment, when you are suddenly moved to tears or laughter, when you get goosebumps or the hairs on your arms stand up, when you are moved by beauty, these too are prayer. Say anything, say everything, say nothing. Do it here or in your car or while you're mowing the lawn. Prayer happens anywhere and everywhere and in so many different ways. The format, the technique, the location, the words, and the outcome are not as important as the relationship that it all happens within. And that is always and already right there for you. Finally, the great spiritual writer Thomas Merton once wrote, In prayer we discover what we already have. You start from where you are and you deepen what you already have and you realize that you are already there. We already have everything, but we don't know it and don't experience it. Everything has been given to us in Christ. All we need to experience is what we already possess. All we need to experience is what we already possess. That is the power of prayer. Being reminded of the reality of God's incredible love and our identity as the beloved children of God. Amen.